Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Beef Central and Alenco Animal Health. Our guest on The Grill today holds a very special place in the history of feedlots in Australia. Given feedlot numbers these days are always over a million head, it's hard to comprehend that the industry just 50 years ago, it did not exist on any scale. And along came the Hart family, and despite a few speed bumps here and there, Along the way, lot feeding is now a multi-billion dollar business. Robin Hart, you're on the grill with Beef Central. Welcome. Thank you very much, Kerry. It's nice of you to have me on board. Now, your father, Sir Bern Hart, war hero, World War One, World War II. Uh, military Correct, cross, yes. yes, indeed. A very successful businessman, but most of that business was in the city. How did the Hart family get into cattle? Well, Dad always had an interest in uh, the bush, I think, and after all, when he grew up in Brisbane, they were riding horses and driving sulkies around the place, and uh, my brother Ian came back from the war, did try accountancy, but then his love was really to go bush, and uh, Dad recognised that, and they bought the property at Kandanga and uh, traded as Bernhard Proprietary Limited. So where did you come to get onto a property where there were large numbers of cattle involved? <laughs> um, well, my experience has started going jackarooing west of Rockhampton, and uh, and then I, I was fortunate to get with a very good manager who later was headhunted by the King Ranch organisation, and um, that took me out to uh, uh, almost just to do a job with the King Ranch, but it was... Uh, really could see that I would prefer a property of my own and that didn't uh, uh, eventuate. But um, and so we bought into a property in the Idesville district. So what year was that? Kerwee. Right, Kerwee, which is your property now, of course. What, what year was that about? That was about, um, oh, 58, I think, yeah. So you were running grazing cattle then. When, yes. when did the first thoughts of a, a feedlot operation come into your mind? Well, we had this property on the Darling Downs, which um, was a, a lovely piece of grazing country in those days. And we started sending our wieners from uh, Idesville down to there and batting them. And uh, we were started marketing um, you know, young carcasses into the Toowoomba market. But um, the season being what we know happens, um, you couldn't always quite finish the cattle. You would take a punishing in the marketplace because they weren't finished. And uh, we weren't the first to do it, but there were a few others in the area that started a small feedlot just to finish off the cattle. It wasn't a, designed to be a full-time feedlot, but just something to finish the cattle off and so that you could market them properly. So what was, the, but, uh, what was the first impetus to enable you or thought that it might be a good idea to send chilled beef to Japan? And when did that, what year did that happen? <laughs> yes, well, it probably started to generate earlier than that because I had uh, fortunate to, um, again, to follow my father who was the founding uh, chairman of directors of a publicly listed meat company called Amagraze and Amagraze um, was more operating up in the north and Cairns but it also 
uh, took on the, the plant in uh, Biloela, and uh, it, it really opened my eyes to the big potential I could see. And I did do a trip to Japan on behalf of Amagraze, and you know I learned from the people who'd come together to um, to purchase and import the uh, Amagraze product. Uh, you know what a great potential there was for our beef. It wasn't long that um, you know we started a small feedlot that we headed to um, beef suitable for the Japanese market too. But it had to be quality. You you recognised the need and the desire for quality beef into Japan. Yes, um, it was pretty obvious that a lot of the product that Amagraze was sending up there, as you could imagine in those days, um, grass-fed bullocks uh, from the peninsula area didn't really meet the, the requirements of the Japanese consumer. You could see that. And a lot of it was going into manufacturing-type uh, uh, outlets. But uh, I could see that the the Japanese themselves uh, had grown up. After all, they hadn't been eating meat for more than about 150 years in those times. And uh, uh, it had been um, something that, you know, their religion didn't allow for. But they had, when they did start eating beef, they were eating beef that had been fed. And so they were looking for white fat and they were looking for marbling and, and something that we weren't going anywhere near to supply. So um, I thought, well, we can do better than this if we feed them ourselves. So where did you get the knowledge to build that initial feedlot or was it just a matter of trial and error? <clears throat> yes, there was a lot of trial and error and uh, we like to forget the errors, but you know, it did take a, a lot to learn how to, to change an animal requirements from eating grass to, to doing well on grain and, um, you know, a slow introduction to the product. And But I suppose uh, because we were operating on the Darling Downs, there were others in that area that, that were looking at the same problem and uh, it wasn't long and we were holding meetings and forming groups and... Um, and realising this was an aspect, a, a new side to the meat industry, to particularly to, to uh, growing beef, and uh, and the, the Lot Feeders Association started accordingly. And we've always been an open organisation, I think, and uh, happy to share uh, with our mates what we're doing and how to do it. And uh, Robin, that's and a learning unique, from the, that. That's a unique part of the beef industry, I suspect. The the uh, almost brotherly cooperation between feedlots about what's going on and what might be of advantage to a person they've found, and they'll pass that knowledge on to other feedlotters. That's, that's been uh, part of yeah, the Yeah, that, that's right. It, it, we didn't try to operate in a secretive way at all. Uh, there were some big companies that probably wanted to shut their doors, but um, anyway, that that's uh, up to any uh, company to have their own rules on those sorts of things. But generally speaking, I think the lot feeders were very open and and helped each other and you know and we brought out people from America to to talk to us all about uh, the way to go forward. I assume you uh, had to talk to a bank about building what was essentially an unknown. When you went to the bank and said, "I want to build a feedlot," what was the response when you asked them <laughs> to provide you with some finance? <laughs> yes, it um, it was a lot of education, just more than amongst the people that were feeding the cattle, but uh, uh, the, the assistance we needed 
that side of the industry had to be well educated as well, I have to admit, yeah. But your association initially and ongoing with Japan was essential to your business. How was this started? Were your trip in 1969, I think, was the first, but you went there many, many times afterwards? Yes. Um, yeah, I know I, I made, um, in those early, for the first 10 years, I suppose, I went to Japan about 40 times because the, the Japanese, um, I found, be very open, friendly people, but in those days with communication not being like it is today, uh, one needed to see them uh, on a regular basis to, um, you know, keep cementing what they wanted and what you could supply and looking at the meat quality. And, and we found, you know, we just had to follow product through and see how the consumers were using it in Japan. Uh, the consumers in Japan are well known for being very particular about what they like. I think your philosophy was if we can sell this to Japan, we can sell it anywhere. Yes, <laughs> that's something that we did work out that uh, it was worth the effort to find out and break the nexus on building a good product into that market and having a good name. And, and then it was a, a much easier job to uh, say, well, this is the product. You know, we're well known in Japan, and uh, and I think other meat markets respected the fact that, well, if they um, if they've got a market in Japan and and uh, it's well thought of, we can give it a try too. Now you did a deal locally with a big abattoir on the downs. They were renowned processors of uh, big grass-fed steers. You had to convince them the abattoir could handle big grain-fed steers. Yes, yes. In those days. Um, you know, there wasn't so much grain fed being produced and uh, the tenders that um, were called into Japan were mostly for uh, grass fed and uh, that particular plant that was uh, Oki, uh, people had a good name because they did buy big big frame, good size bullocks and the Japanese market was looking for um, bigger cuts of meat, strangely enough. But um, certainly looking for more mature beef anyway. Um, not old by any uh, standards, but mature. And uh, and it was easy for us to say, well, you know, we're producing a, a big size animal too. Um, we are going into the same market, but we've got our market already um, secured and, and we're not competing. And uh, well, we had a good relationship there then uh, as they felt that... Um, the type of beef we were producing out of a feedlot was not doing their own brand any harm either, that it was packed in their cartons, even though it was under our um, brand name. Most markets, you know, look at the number that's on the, the carton to, to recognise the plant that it comes from. You're on the grill with Kerry Lonigan and Robin Hart, one of the founders of Australia's feedlot industry. Back in a moment. Akatak Duo Star from Alanco provides knockdown and residual control of cattle ticks and ivermectin sensitive parasites. Applied early in the season, Akatak Duo Star reduces the buildup of the tick population and helps to prolong the life of effective chemistry. Give ticks and worms the flick with Akatak Duo Star. Always read and follow the label directions and ensure good agricultural practice for optimal parasite control. On behalf of Elenco, welcome back to On The Grill. Our guest today, Robin Hart, one of the founders of Australia's feedlot industry. 
Right, I understand that you're going very, very well for a while with all these deals being done here and in Japan. Things are going well, and then you get flattened by international circumstances in the, was it the mid-70s this happened? Yes, that's right, about the mid-70s, and yeah, it was a terrible time. It it flattened the the grain-fed industry um, tremendously badly, and you know, there were a lot of companies that had started feedlots that never really got going again, uh, and that was a shame. Um, it was an oversupply on those one should have seen it, but there were, um, you know, more markets there that we knew there was a desire to buy our beef, but uh, they were well organised with their own domestic production too, and Japan was certainly that way. The domestic producers had a lot of political clout. And so once the European market closed the market, Japan closed their market as well. And even though we had beef sold and we had buyers prepared to put up a letter of credit and everything, um, they, they couldn't import it. And we couldn't export it. We couldn't get paid. And there was a lot of big bullocks that, that went through the market just as manufacturing beef, Wow, which is a crying shame in those days. Yeah. Now, the year you had a beef mountain as well, that wouldn't have helped it. How did you survive? What did you sell to survive through that period? Well, we we closed down pretty much, but we did keep going in a small way and even did some um, live exports to um, some Pacific Island countries and... Uh, some of them were breeding stock. Some of them were, were beef for, uh, for slaughter. Um, and then when the Japanese market did open up, um, it was very heavily and tightly controlled. And uh, it was very hard to get back in there. But And particularly some of the companies that we had been sending um, live cattle as deck cargo uh, to be slaughtered in Japan was going into some of the new supermarket trade, but the supermarkets sadly didn't have quota and they didn't have the outlet. We, when the Japanese market opened, it was very much controlled by the hard core meat industry importers, and uh, we found that very hard to, to break through. But uh, the fact that we kept going by supplying live animals um, a lot of those supermarkets could see, well, here was uh, someone who was prepared to sort of bend over backwards to get good meat to them. And so when finally the market did open properly, it was those supermarkets that um, did stick to our business. I'm glad we'd worked with them. I say, is that when you established the Stockyard brand? Um, no, well, Stockyard um, established before that. Um, and originally it, it was... In fact, it, uh, we put together a, a group of people, include a Japanese importer and uh, three other feedlots on the Darling Downs. And uh, it was all expressly about marketing beef to, to the Japanese importer, which was Nitsuku. And of course, that all had closed up badly with the meat slump. But um, we did call it that company Stockyard in those days. So. It was pretty early on. That would have been that would Robin. That would have been one of the first ever branded beef uh, offerings, Stockyard. Yes, it, it would have been. Yeah. When did the Wagyu herd 
come into prominence or when did you get a taste of that and say we'll get into this as quickly as we can? I must admit I, I missed the boat there because I made a wrong judgment. Um, seeing the Japan, the Wagyu in Japan, um, I was not convinced that they could cope with our conditions here. And, uh, and I always felt that um, we were not competing with Wagyu beef in Japan. Our quality was not as high quality as theirs, not as highly marbled. Um, but I was wrong because uh, it, it wasn't long after that, you know, more Wagyu came to Australia and via America. And, uh, you know, they've proven they are very adaptable and uh, can even be fattened on grass and successfully. Um, but um, although we got into it a, a little bit later due to that misjudgment of mine, we, we've made up for it since. And we've now got quite a, a, a nice wag you heard of our own and uh, uh, putting through a, a fairly high percentage of wag you cattle now, through our own feedlot. And now we have the, uh, Australia has the biggest <laughs> wag you heard in, in the world, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, it's amazing. In fact, um, I was intrigued. We had one of the few times I had a, a Japanese actually come and stay with us, and he was in our home when he got word about the export of Wagyu cattle. And this gentleman was heavily involved with the Wagyu cattle in Japan, and they were very much wanting to keep uh, that breed um just like we've been with our merino sheep, I suppose, uh, tied up and, and only used, only, uh, you know, owned by the Japanese. It's, it's but a, there was a, a Wagyu breeder in Japan who moved his herd up into Hokkaido, knowing that from Hokkaido he could export them um, free to America. Yeah. And uh, he, he sold his herd that way. And, of course, um, the Wagyu herd's become a... International breed, now. absolutely. The rest is, is history, as they say. Now, yes. as, as well as the growth of, um, of of your feedlot business, the industry itself has expanded immensely. Did you envisage this sort of growth when you were young and first starting? No, I can't uh, say that I had that sort of foresight. But I was always strongly uh, a believer in it, and we did all we could to um, to, to structure it properly. Um, and I think the fact that, you know, the early grain feeders were all prepared to sort of work with each other and uh, help uh, the industry grow um, has helped that to happen. And uh, uh, it's great to see it's on such strong footing now. Yes. Um, are there any potential issues the industry should be aware of which might impinge on that growth? I'm thinking about animal welfare business, which is becoming stronger. No, I, I, I really think, yes, it, you know, I think um, we've yet to have some of the pressure put on us that I think some other producers, producing industries have had. But in some respect, I think that is because I, think, I hope uh, that we've been a step ahead in a lot of ways. Um, we've taken it head on and really attacked the the criticism of um, animal welfare because as an industry I think we've done quite well in that field. Um, and when you think about it, it's only common sense 
um, everything you can do to make the animal that you're looking after and feeding more comfortable um, and, and able to handle conditions that you're putting them in, um, the better returns you get. So, you know, it's just common sense that uh, producers today, particularly in the uh, grain feeding industry, um, those animals are terribly well looked after and haven't got the stress and strains that happen perhaps out in the paddocks with um, dry times and everything too. So you're, you're very positive about the future for um, lot feeding in Australia? Well, I am. I am. And I, uh, I hope there's something not there that we haven't foreseen, but I, I am quite confident. And I think it has got a great future. And uh, I think particularly in Australia, we've... Uh, We've gone ahead leaps and bounds, and we've always um, been highly driven by what the scientist tells us too. And I think with animal welfare and, and everything that we do with animals, if one follows the science, um, uh, you can't go too far wrong. Robin Hart, you're a true legend in the beef industry, and you're universally described by everyone I've spoken to you as one of nature's gentlemen. On behalf of Beef Central, thank you so much for appearing on The Grill. Thank you very much, Kerry, and that's a very nice comment to end on. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Beef Central and our podcast partner, Elenco Animal Health. <laughs>